I want you to turn briefly to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm using that as a text to speak on the subject, money and you. I know people in the world accuse churches. That's all we ever preach on around here is money. But that's not always true everywhere. It is true, I'm sure, more than it should be. But in spite of what people think about churches and money, it's a big subject in the Bible. It can have a great determination on your life of how you do in this life. It can be the cause of a curse. It can be the cause of a blessing. It all depends on how you use it rather than how it uses you. It's an interesting subject, I think. It's a big subject, yet it's a little sensitive for a lot of people because, again, a lot of people don't like to be told how they should give or how much they should give and stuff like that. That's not the purpose of what I'm doing is to tell you how much or how you give. I believe you teach the Word and you let your conscience bear witness to your heart of how you ought to do these things. But if you want to be blessed, God has a way of showing you how to be blessed. For example, verse 18 and 19 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And he said, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him, for this is his portion. I like that. That's a good verse. That's the way it should be. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is a gift of God. May all of us so be blessed. May God have given us that authority. He uses the word power. May we all have that authority, have that experience in this life as Christians, that not only in our endeavor to live right and to treat right and to do right, but also to have God bless us in the process in such a way that we actually enjoy what he gives us all the days of our life. With all the turmoil in life, with all the difficulties and all the other things that goes with life, God adds this to it. That all the days of your life, to the man that he has given, well, he used the word in verse 19, riches and wealth. So it is in the Bible, at least in a measure. And to whom God has given that, and he's given that to a lot of people. I think more could have received it, but because of their either twisted thinking on the subject or because of other things, they have not fared as well as they could have. It's my personal belief that it should be well with all of us. The word prosperity means that. It means to do well. It doesn't have to be just money and material things because you can do well without money. There's a lot of people that are doing quite well without a whole lot. They've got as much as they need, they're happy, they're contented, they're doing well, they're useful to God. And then there's the people that have a lot of money and they're stressed out and worried about it, and they don't do well. So to be prosperous in this life, to have good success, is to live in such a way that the blessing of God is totally sufficient for you. You have more than you need, you go in and you out, you find green pastures and still waters, you're at peace in your heart. You're living good. You love your children. Your children love you and your neighbors and so forth if you don't have children. It's the kind of life that God has given to us to live. It can be. It should be like that. As a church and as Christians, we're so used to seeing so many people not do well, especially in the church. So many people are struggling with so many things. And we read the promises that are given about all of those things, but we just see little success. Not many are doing well, and it's kind of a discouraging thing because it, it does prevent a lot of people from stepping out and trusting God because, well, if it's not working for this one or that one, how do I know it'll work for me? And we've learned to just sit back and let what may be, be. We've changed our theology to fit our experiences 
And we say, well, God could, and certainly God has, and if he wants me to have this, if he wants me to have that, then he'll give it to me because otherwise there's no way I'm ever going to have anything. And there's a better way that you can think than that way. That's the way of religion. And yet you read your Bible, and if you read it enough, if you come enough, if you listen to what the Bible says enough, you will eventually come to that part where he says that it may be well with you and your children after you, like in Deuteronomy 5, that God wants it to be like that. If we'll pursue that, we don't pursue that because, well, boy, I want to to have all that. No, we pursue these things because it pleases God to give you his promises. The promise didn't originate with the church or with us. Greed and covetous originated with us. But the promise of the abundant life and well-being comes from God. It pleases our Heavenly Father for us to live like that. Therefore, it is good for us to not only read those things, but acknowledge those things, but claim those things. I want to be blessed in this life. I really do, and I am. But I want to be blessed. I know it pleases God to bless me because it's a fulfillment of his promise. You remember in 2 Corinthians, you all know this by heart, all the promises of God are in him, that's Jesus, are in him, yes, and in him, amen. Then it finishes the verse with these words, to the glory of God by us. So he puts the promise out there. The fulfillment of the promise brings testimonies of praise to God, but only if you claim it, you stand your ground and use your faith and get it. So I want to be blessed. I want to be able to walk away from whatever I have. I don't want this world to own me. He said he gives us richly all things to enjoy. And your personal enjoyment pleases God as well as your commitment and all the other things that are in there. We're talking about this one thing tonight. He said in verse 19, this is the gift of God. This is what God gives. This is the level that I think he wants us to see. Now, last time I asked the question, is prosperity a promise? Is it truly a provision that God gives us? Or is it just a word that's used in the Bible without any certainty. Can we really prosper? And by that, I mean, can we really do better, have some degree of this world's goods? Is it wrong for us to do well? Psalm 112, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 112, he said, blessed is a man who fears the Lord, who delights and so forth in his commandments. And he said... One of the things he promised is that will be in that man's life. He said, wealth and riches shall be in his house. And if you've got a dictionary, you can look it up and you can see that it means wealth and riches. And we ask ourselves a question, can that be? Would I be greedy if I claim that? Well, not if God promised it. Certainly not if he promised it. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he said, what? He'll give you the desires of your heart, the psalmist said. Imagine. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. They're not yours, they're his. People deride you and persecute you because you claim such things. It didn't start with you. It started with God. There's a devil out there who wants to keep us poor and broke. And he wants to make you feel guilty if you are pursuing God and what he said. But he said he forgives our sins, heals our diseases, crowns us with loving kindness, renews our youth, satisfies our mouth with good things. There's no limit to what he's willing to do. If you believe it, these things don't happen because they're written in the Bible. You can't just point to a promise in the Bible and say, well, I see it there. If he wants me to have it, I'll take it, but I, I, don't, I don't know anybody's get it. you got to believe it. I mean, that verse of Scripture has to be something you press in for. Faith comes by hearing, not quoting the Bible doesn't mean you have faith. A lot of people quote the Bible thinking that'll get it. But you got to believe it in your heart. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. But you got to have your faith. you got to use faith. And that's an assumption that I'm making in teaching this series, that, that you do believe 
what the Bible says. And that you may struggle with some things. Well, you keep struggling with it, but keep pressing in and faith will come. God gives faith. It comes from him and he will enable you to receive whatever he has. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. I believe the scriptures show that we can enjoy the abundant life and its benefits. I do. I believe the scripture reveals that to us. And if you look for it, you'll see it a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. He said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now, how do you read that? Do you read that with questions? I think most people do. I don't know why it is that so many Christian publications or Christian broadcasts, I don't know why so many people are against prosperity. A lot of them are against healing and prosperity. They call it the health and wealth gospel, as though health and wealth are sins, that you should never claim health or wealth or that you can't claim health or wealth or that such things are not promised in the Bible. If you say healing and, and well-being and prosperity is not promised in the Bible, I'll, you don't even know what you're talking about. You've never read it. You've listened to somebody. You've never read it for yourself because you'll find that it is in there. It can corrupt you. Yes, I agree with them about that. It can. A lot of people have been corrupted. But it's amazing that the people who are against prosperity and abundance have great big radio programs and are beneficiaries of a lot more money than you are. And yet they seem to feel like it's not right if they should tell you that God wants to prosper you, that you can do better than you're doing right now. Not for your good, but for his good. And he'll bless you while you're doing it. But it's for his glory. And so in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, he said, think of this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's his favor, that which he bestows, which brings something said, though he was rich. What do we know in the Bible about that? Would you say that God is rich? Do you have windows in your house that you can pour a blessing out? No, you don't. I mean, the blessing of God is abundant. Nothing's too difficult for him. He can bless you as you go out. He can bless you as you come in. He can bless you in everything you put your hand to. He can make you the head and not the tail. Sounds to me like God's doing pretty good. He's the source of blessings. He's God. And when the Bible speaks of the fact that he was rich, you can think of the portals of glory that are often spoken of, the ivory palace, his riches and glory that Paul spoke of. And again, the windows of heaven, and he can bless you abundantly, the abundant life. God is the source of abundance. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it how? And the devil comes to kill, to steal, that's take away and destroy, whether your life or your hopes. That's his goal. And so he said, though he was rich, and we know that he was, it said, yet for your sakes... He became poor. Now, when was Jesus poor? How would you see Jesus as poor? Well, maybe he was poor spiritually. I doubt that. I doubt that Paul said God gave him the spirit without measure. So we know he wasn't poor spiritually, but we do know that he did say once, I have not a place to lay my head. He was able to say to those, follow me, follow me, follow me. And he took responsibility, apparently, for taking care of them. I don't know. I know that he had a bag. He had a treasure. Judas carried the bag. So they weren't exactly broke. But it says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor. So his poverty was something he came down to. 
Now, what does it mean that he was poor? Because it says that yet for your sakes he became poor and that you through his poverty might be rich. Now, if poverty means poor, then rich means rich. Now, how you define rich is between you and how you see it. For some people, rich is having food on the table and loving your family. And there's certainly that's a riches that a lot of people don't have. For some people, having riches could mean, boy, I got it big and large and a whole bunch of it. And there's a problem with that if you get overloaded into that. Like that rich man said, I'm, I got so much, I'm going to tear down my barns. And look how much I got. All these treasures I've laid up for myself. And Jesus said, you fool, tonight you're going to die. Life isn't about the abundance of things you possess. God gives you things. He gives you richly. But your life is not about how many toys you have. It's about how you serve the Lord. And he will equip you as you serve the Lord. Now in this present time, he'll bless you. Put your finger there in 2 Corinthians 9. I'm going to come back to it. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Next book to the right and look at verse 13. It says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Does your Bible say hath or has? So it's something that's already been done. You would agree with that. Would you also agree that according to that verse that there was a curse that was spoken of in the law that goes for those who are lawbreakers. The curse of the law. So in one verse of scripture so far, Christ, the one who came down, has redeemed us, purchased us back, rescued us from the curse of the law. The law levels a curse on all disobedience. And the law makes no provisions to remove that curse. You break it once, you broke it. The blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse you from that. You're in sin, you're in sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. Nobody's righteous. All men are sold under sin. You'd agree with that. And all men, therefore, are under the curse of the law. Every non-Christian today is. The only way you escape the penalty of the law is to be in Christ. In Galatians 3, he said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made what? Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So Jesus came to do something to deliver us from something. He came to redeem us from the curse of the law. Now, if you read Deuteronomy 28, one of the curses of the law was poverty. We don't want to go through Deuteronomy 28. There's several verses in there that show how poverty comes upon those that are under its weight. And so Christ came to this earth, taking your place, stood before God, holy, perfect, without sin, kept himself clean and pure all the days of his life, bore the curse of the law. He said he was poor. If he bore the sins, uh, if he bore sickness, was he sick? No, you don't have to be sinful to be a sin bearer. Did he not become the sin offering from God? He never sinned. He simply took the sinner's place. Along with sin, everything that follows sin, everything that follows iniquity, which is poverty and sickness and, and all these other things, they all go with curse. Jesus simply took our place, died on the cross, as he said here, curse every man hang on a tree. And when he did that, the next verse, verse 14 says, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now we can have that. We've been delivered from the curse of the law. Jesus became a curse for us. He had no place to lay his head, yet the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But in being a redeemer, he walked in a way that he did, lived the way that he did, even though he said he had not a place to lay his head. 
sort of wandered through Galilee from the north to the top, always knowing where he was going. But all the things that he did without, all the things that he did not have for the brief time that he was here was to undo from us the curse of the law. Now, when God raised him from the dead, the last verse of this chapter says, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise? Because all the promises of God are in him, Christ, yes, and in him, amen. Now, if you've been redeemed, you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you've been redeemed from the curse of the law. You've been redeemed from the penalty of sin. These things no longer have a right to your life. You've been set free. I've told the devil many times when fighting something or going through something or dealing with something. I tell him, I say, I'm under the blood. I'm not under the curse. The blood of Jesus has set me free from the penalty of sin and death on the cross. I'm free. The devil has no right to put on me what God laid on Jesus who bore it for me. And I've been delivered. I've been redeemed and I'm set free from that. And I refuse to submit myself and go through all this over and over and over and over again on this earth. I'm free. My parents grew up with a poverty mentality. I'm sure their parents did. Seem like generations in my family. I don't know about yours. But generations in my family, people were poor. They talked about money all the time and what they didn't have. And I wish I had. And if I had yours and you had. And, and oh, look, I wonder what that. Why, why are they spending that money? Look at the neighbor. Where'd they get that? Well, why'd they buy a new one? And just money, money, money. And yet deep down inside, all of them wish they could have done better than they did. My parents told me, just like maybe you've done yours. Well, we wish we could help you. We wish we could do something more for you. But we just don't have, we just can't do it. And that's probably true. We couldn't. But I'd like to signal the fact that, you know, I can believe better than that. I can. I believe we all can. I can do better than that. I believe I can be set free and go a little deeper than that. Notice, go back to, to 2 Corinthians. Not only did he say that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, then I can say this. I'm no longer under a curse. Are you? Well, I'm not. Are you? Let me try this out over here. We're not doing good over here. Are you all under a curse over here? Well, you shouldn't be. And whatever is a curse that defines a curse in the Bible, you don't have to have that anymore. You don't have to wish one way and hope another way. You can just bleed God. He said, you've been set free from the curse of the law. Now, back in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, he said that through his poverty, you might be rich. What does that mean? Does that mean that you sitting out there can do a lot better than you're doing? And yet, when I say that, does your mind begin to race around and see yourself looking like Charlie Potatoes and got this and got that, and I'm pretty whatever, cool, they say it today. See, if it is, then your mind's troubled. Your mind's warped about spiritual matters. The fact that God said he will bless you means that things can be better than they are. You don't have to be caught up in it to live for this, but this is what God will give you. It is not a sin to have more than one pair of shoes. I don't want any more. That's fine. It's not a sin to have more than two coats. Or three, or four, five, six, seven, eight. How many y'all got? It's not a sin to have extra money in your checking account. That's not wrong. You're not going to perish because you're doing well. God wants you to have the abundant life. Along with your struggles, and I have to keep throwing that in because people say we don't think there are any, but along with all the struggles you'll encounter in this life, you're going to at some point have to learn there's more on a cow than hamburger. There are steaks. And you can't wish someday you could have a steak. You can have one. You just have to believe God, get your thinking straightened out, uh, get your mind renewed. What was it God said in Isaiah 55 to his people? He said, your thoughts are not my thoughts. And look at you, your ways are not my ways. 
You're living a way that you think is the best I can do, and I don't know any other way to live. You know, I'm just, I mean, your way isn't necessarily God's way. And if somebody tells you God's way, the devil is going to fire on you to say, oh, look, see, he's getting into that health and wealth stuff now. That stuff is bad. Is it? You can teach it bad. I agree with that. I've heard them. I've heard the ones they're talking about. But at the same time, you can draw back and let a spirit of poverty hold you down. I grew up on this barely get along stuff. Get it as cheap as you can. Just don't spend any money. My parents grew up in the Depression. And it must have been a pretty hard time. But it's interesting that the average church member today, I think, gives 2.3% of his income to the Lord. In the Depression, they gave 3.3%. I'm a Google machine. You can get all that information out there. God said in, in, uh, in the Bible, if you'll look briefly at it, in Mark chapter 10, about this word rich or well-to-do or material gain or having something that's yours, maybe paid for. Look at Mark chapter 10 in verses 29 and 30. Now, I know this verse has been mistreated, but I'm not going to run from it because somebody's done it wrong. The truth is still in here. Mark chapter 10 and verse 29. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left. Now, see, he called Peter to come follow. He said, No man has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife, woo, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, L-A-N-D-S, lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. So there is a blessing for right now. Now, he's not talking here necessarily about money. But he goes back to that abundant thing about the kind of people that you'll have around you, the kind of people that will support you, pray for you. When you come to the Lord, you're willing to dedicate your heart and life to the Lord and if necessary, walk away from anything and anybody to serve the Lord on his terms. He said, in this present life, you will receive a hundredfold. When he sent his disciples out, he said, don't take Anything, don't take any money, don't even take a bag to put money in. I'll take care of you, you trust me. And get rid of your sword. And then later on, he said, when I sent you out without anything, do you have anything now? And they said, yes. Do you have a sword? They said, yes. They were blessed. They came back. They just learned how to do what they did. They trusted in the Lord, and God rewarded them and blessed them. This business of a hundredfold return has, has been abused. A lot of people have taken that to say, well, now look, here's the way this works. We're going to pass the bucket here in a minute. We're going to pass a trash can here in a minute. And when this trash can comes by you, tell you something, you put a dollar in there, God will give you a hundred more back. Well, man gets scratching his chin and think, you know what? I believe this. If that preacher believed that, he'd put the whole church in that bucket if he couldn't get 100 churches. <laughs> well, yeah, why don't you go cash in all the money? Hey, I tell you what, everybody come and cash in everything you've got, sell all that you have until you've got nothing. Yard, sell it all and get rid of it all. Bring it all in here and put it in the offering bucket. And then within a short space of time, you'll own the county and all the people in it will be indebted to you. That's ignorant dumbest thing I've ever saw. He's simply saying, look, you're not going to give anything to God that God's not going to reward you for it. You're not going to give him your time without being rewarded. You're not going to give him your labor without him rewarding you. You're not going to help do whatever it is that is the Lord's work. You're, you're not going to do anything and suffer for it. He'll bless you a hundredfold. If you, from the bottom of your heart, wanted to give somebody, help somebody somewhere, I know this works. You gave somebody who was in need a way that they didn't know where it came from. You gave money to somebody to help them in their need. And it just seems like within a month, within a week or whatever, 
you've got more, your check went further, you've got more than you've ever had, and then you realize, man, I've never done this well, and then you think back. You do things God's way, you do the way he wants you to do it, and he'll cause blessings to come upon you and overtake you. Now, that's what he said in Deuteronomy 28. He said, if you will just hearken to my word, incline your ear to my sayings, think about it, do it. He said, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And he mentions being blessed when you go out and blessed when you come in, blessed in the field, blessed in the city, whatever you put your hand to, your baskets, your store, your crops, your animals, and you'll be holy in the process, a holy people in the process of just putting God first, trusting in the Lord, let God have everything, don't cry about what he wants, just give it to him, whether it's your time or your money or your resources, whatever it is. And you just have to learn that, you know, Lord, I'm yours. If the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and obviously me being on the earth, everything I have is yours too. I came into this world with nothing. I'm not going to take anything out of this world. Help me not to get attached to it while I'm in the world. And we've all been attached to stuff, stuff we just couldn't let go of and would dread to lose. The thing I would hate to lose the most back in the old days I believe this is pretty close to right. The thing that I feared losing more than anything was my Bible because I had it all marked up. You could almost holler at it open right to where you wanted to. And that was one of the older ones. But you come to a place where you think, you know, everything I have, everything I've got, I realize what I have and the abundance that I call abundance, you might call it poverty, but what I have I call abundance, and God has given it all to me not because I needed it, but simply because I asked for it. I shared this the other day with you. I was sitting out in a little room out there behind my garage. I sit out there a lot. I like sitting out there and just looking around at all the stuff in there that I really had no affection for at all, looking at all the stuff, stuff locked up over in there. And I thought, years ago, I didn't have anything. And now I don't have any place to put it. Like that man with that barn, that bothers me. I didn't have room enough in the safe to get everything hid. I said, you know, you bless me, Lord. And, and then the little thoughts that form in your mind, because you ask. Did he say, ask and you shall receive? I remember the first time somebody taught on asking, and I thought, well, yeah, well, I've asked for a lot of things in my life that I didn't get. And then somebody taught me about faith, and I thought, well, that's the reason I didn't get it. But I didn't believe I would get it. I asked because I really wanted it, but I didn't believe I would get it, so I quit asking. But I want you to know, folks, that, that when it comes to money and you, first of all, your source is God. God has made provision for all of us to have more than you've got. But there's a reason for it, and we'll hopefully get to that later on. But let's, first of all, look at how the abundant life comes. And number one is giving. Giving. It's the nature of God to give. God so loved the world that he gave. James 1 talks about ask and you'll receive. And he said, God will give to you liberally. That's more than you need. And he won't upbraid you or censure you for asking. But he said, you know, you ask in faith because he goes on to say that God is a generous, giving God. Liberally means liberally. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8 is a principle here. See, I do not believe we're under the law. I don't. I do not believe that I must practice what the law said. The law is good because contained throughout the law are New Testament principles. See, we don't live by laws, but we do live by principles. Listen, things that are formed on our conscience so that I can no longer say, I didn't do this or that. The Bible says, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. 
One man believes this way because that's all the further he is. Another man believes this way. How many of you know that we're all obligated to God on the basis of what he's taught us? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I don't want to forget it. I don't want to forget anything. I want to be blessed. So he gives us his word as a basis for a renewed conscience. And your conscience will bear witness to what you say and what you do and what you think as to whether or not it is right or wrong. And he that knows to do good, and he doesn't do it, doesn't want to do it, to that person, it is sin. A person can't now point to a law or, or a rule in the Old Testament and say, well, not anymore. As a way of being right with God, as a means of you having a right relationship to God, it is no longer by rules and regulations. It is now by relationship. And in this relationship, Jesus becomes your Lord, L-O-R-D, master. He becomes the, well, controller. By consent, he's a controller. And you willingly yield your heart and your mind to him that whatever he says becomes for you the way you should live. Again, he that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin. Unto whom much is given, much is required. That's not a law or that's not a rule. That's a relationship. The more you relate to God, the more he speaks, the more that's your life. That's the way you live. One man's conscience allows him to eat anything. Romans 14 says another man's conscience condemns him if he eats certain foods. Oh, we can't eat pork. Pork is out. You know, you can't eat swine. The wily hog is out. So all you barbecue folks, I don't know about y'all, but you better straighten up. You come up and you say, that was true under the law. That there were laws governing foods you could eat and could not eat. But we're not under a law. Well, we shouldn't eat red meat anyway. The boy, you know, Jesus should have told the priest about, we'll get to that later. All that food, all that red meat he gave them, the choicest cuts, the priests got that and ate it. Didn't God know that red meat's not good for you? People get swallowed up in all of this fear today about foods and everything else. But back to the wily hog, you get to the place where if you don't eat certain foods, you're going to heaven. If you do this, I'm all right with the Lord. If I don't do that, I'm all right with the Lord. You can be very legalistic that way in that you're determining your goodness before God on the basis of what you do or what you don't do. And again, we don't live by law. I know what the Bible says about eating pork and shrimp and nasty little things, stuff like that. They couldn't eat that. But it doesn't say you can't. In fact, in the New Testament, it said the law that these folks were under and all the rules and regulations, even Peter said, you know, none of us could keep it. So when we go out to the Gentiles, now that the Gentiles, that Christ has come to them, let's don't put that same thing on them. We couldn't live it. They can't either. Let's just tell them not to eat foods with the blood. No blood boudin. None of that. Y'all know what boudin is? It'll take me too long to tell about boudin. But boudin is meat stuffed in a gut. It's spicy and it's seasoned. It's, I was introduced to it in uh, New Orleans years ago. And I didn't know what it was until we stopped at a stoplight and I looked over. You know, I was in the passenger side and looked over at a girl. She had that thing about three inches out and she was struggling on it. And, and I knew right away what that was. It had that old gray looking meat in it. And I said, that's boudin. He laughed. Brother Tartar was with him, and he just laughed. He said, that is, that's boudin. He said, you want some blood boudin? Now, blood boudin's off limits because it was that same meat stuff with, with blood mixed in all that meat, and it's red. Now, I'm not into that any, not because of a law, because of the Bible, just because of what it looks like. I'm way part of it. I believe we're free to eat anything we want to. With moderation, I do. Again, I'm not under the law. The law wasn't made for Gentiles anyway. It was made for the Jewish people. But the commands and the demands of the law covered the whole earth. All have sinned 
the strength of sin is the law. Without law, there could be no sin. If the Gentiles weren't under law, they could have never sinned. But the law is universal. It is God's declaration of his righteousness that all men broke it, Jew or Gentile. But they were under a law, we aren't. Getting off of that, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, in this principle here, he said, and God is able. Well, you've got to like that. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Does your Bible say that? God says, concerning giving now, God is able when it comes to giving. And we've learned to say, because we have a religious mind, well, I can't afford that. Not this month. We're too far behind. But he said, God is able. For those who need their minds renewed in this area, God is able to make all of his wonderful grace abound towards you. So that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound in, I think it would say this, in every good work, in all things. I mean, this is the way it is. Now, look at two verses before that, at this principle, about sowing and reaping that leads us down to that eighth verse. Verse 6, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. That obviously is not a tithe. Let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. That obviously is not a tithe either. For God loveth a cheerful giver. Your Bible says something close. Sowing and reaping, that's a principle, and it's also an established way of life. What you sow, you reap, whether in money or whether hatefulness and hatefulness, ugly and ugly. Rudeness gets rudeness. Unkindness gets unkindness. Uncleanness will get uncleanness. What you sow, you reap. In fact, we're told in another book, be not deceived. Don't mislead yourself. Don't you get your thinking wrong about this. What you sow, you're going to reap. You sow indifference to God in this life and put him in secondary place or fit him in when your lifestyle allows him to come. You do that, he'll do the same thing to you. In operation of this principle, he said, if you give bountifully, now the word bountifully means abundantly. Verse 5, the word bounty is used, the same word, make up the bounty. So let's make up your gift. What you're going to give? If you don't want to give much, God won't either. How's that? Is that fair? If this was the way it worked, and I think it is. If you don't want to give much, then God doesn't have to give much. If you have a liberal heart and you want to give more, not to get more, but you want to give more to be a greater blessing and extend yourself maybe a little further than you have, then God will do that for you. Is that fair? He that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. He that soweth grudgingly or sparingly, moderately, infrequently, not as much as you probably could, but that's enough. That's the way God will give it back to you. As you measure it out, Jesus said, as you measure it out, it'll be measured back to you. Now, God is able to measure it out so that your basket runs over, shake it together, get all of it in that you can, and just pile more on it, runs out. That's Luke 6, 38. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure. Press down like you ever do leaves after you're raking leaves. You have to jump up and down on them so you can get more in. Good measure, press down, shaken together, shall the Lord cause to be given unto you. You can't deny that's not in the Bible. And the giving he speaks of there is obviously monetary. And it's probably a test. Malachi 3 was. He said, try me. 
You know what I've said. You know what I promised. You don't know if it'll work? Try me. Put me to the test. Just say, Lord, I've never done this. I don't know exactly. I'm not altogether sure about all the mechanics of this, but I'm going to trust you like this. Lord, I only make $15 a week. You know what? You could give something, couldn't you? Couldn't you? I don't mean you have to say, well, if I make $15 a week, I've got to give a dollar and a half because that's 10%. 10% is in the mind of man. That's religious man who thinks 10% is a legal amount that we are indebted to the Lord to give out of our income. You not only limit yourself to 10%, but he may even want 20 But we've just got in our mind that the tithe comes over in the New Testament, and that's the standard. It's easy to make everything out of a tenth. You know, $100 is $10. is $1,000 is $100. Ooh, $10,000 is $1,000 and so forth. I know that there's a legalism in the church because we've had checks in the mail for like uh, $13.62. Once you just make it 65 round it off. You say, well, that's what I believe. Well, fine. God will accept it. But you're limiting yourself. Because you could always say, you know, instead of making $13, I'm going I'm to give 14 Well, I don't have to give 14 I know you don't have to. You, don't, you can keep it if you want to. Or you can give it. You can measure it out in a more of an amount than you thought you should. And God will measure it back. He knows your heart. But as he said here, he that sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. And every man give, verse 7, as he purposeth in his heart. I would think before anybody gives, you would ask yourself, Lord, what do you want me to do? How much? To whom or how much? My local obligation or my brotherly sister need help missionary obligation. What do you want me to do? It's yours anyway. And God will usually show you. He'll indicate something. You'll get some kind of a number or some kind of a figure. It's just where you start. And he might say certain amount of money. Well, the Bible said that's the amount of money you give. Not grudgingly with some kind of a distress, grieved, and sorrowful. Do I have to give that much? Five dollars? I bought three ones to church, so if they take up three offerings, I, can only, I only have to go three times, $3 and $1 a piece. $5, Lord. When's the last time we took up three offerings? But anyway, it's just this thing about money that a lot of people have a problem with, especially giving. You worked hard to get it, and it's hard to just let go of it. But... As one version said, each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not a sad, I don't want to give. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that? Jesus said, why do you call me good? Do you know the commandments? Do this, do this. He said, I've kept all of those from my youth. You know what Jesus said to him? One thing you lack. One thing you've left out of your pursuit of a holy, related to God life. One thing you left out. What's that? I want you to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then you come and take up your cross and follow me and you'll have eternal life. And the Bible said the man went away sorrowful. For he had great riches. He couldn't let up. You know what the story Jesus told after that was? How hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom because their money holds them down. If you make under $20,000, you're more apt to give 10% of your income than people are like up to $70,000 from there. That's like 1.7. Then you get over $90,000 and it's back to three point something. So see, if you make a lot more money, you're going to give more. You're going to do better. Amen. But it's hard for people to let go of that dollar. You worked hard. You struggled for it. You did this and did that for it. And then God says, now I want you to give so much of it to somebody else. 
And I do believe that in the days of the Levitical system and all the priesthood and all the sacrifices and the animals, thousands of people in the tribe of Levi, and they all had a job, whether they were singers, musicians, or people who cleansed the utensils, they had all of this to do. It took a lot of people because there's a lot of people standing in line to bring her sacrifice. And I feel sure that a lot of those people that worked hard raising those cows or raising those crops, growing those crops, probably looked at those priests and there. Some weren't working as hard as they thought they should work. And yet when they sacrificed this animal, or this animal was given as a gift unto God, the priest got it. They got to take that choice meat that you gave and eat it. I mean, they had the best of the best. And I'm sure there were some folks just like today that I don't know about all of that. These guys, why should they get all the best? I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to bring all that next time because it seemed like they got more than they need. They begin to back off. And when they begin to back off, the whole nation began to decline. The whole nation, the church, the people, everything did. Man has a way of being tight and stingy. A little reluctant sometimes to let go of his hard-earned money because he tries to see where it's going. And if it goes into the storehouse and he has no rule over the storehouse, he wants to know what they're doing with that money. That's why they have a yearly accounting in most churches. This is what we did with our money. This is what you, let me see what you got. Let me see the books. And he always wants to have a say in everything. But that's not exactly the way God wanted it to be. And so that's not the way it's going to be. But Some of the questions that come up when you talk about giving is, who do I give to? I know giving is a fundamental principle and responsibility of all Christians. So who do I give to? Do I give to a church? Do I give to a person? Do I give to a corporation? Who do I give? I say this, it's a lot harder to give money to a person than it is to a system. It is. It's a lot harder to give your money to a person than it is to a system. A missionary may come by. Some of them are legitimate. Some of them turned out not to be. But a missionary may come by and tell about what he's doing and solicit your help and your support. And because we want to be a part of anything that blesses people and glorifies God, we give. Actually, we're not giving to a company. We're giving it to a man. And when he walks out of here, you don't know what he's going to do with it any more than you put money in that box back there, what I'm going to do with it. You just have to trust the Lord with it. You just have to say, I'm, I'm giving this not to him anyway. I'm giving this to the Lord. And it's tougher to give like that than it would be to give to a corporation like a man did me one time up in Indianapolis. I'm going to write you a nice check. Uh, so, all right. Right. I didn't say that because I never was good at that. Bonnie was pretty good at it, but I wasn't. You guys check, what's the name of your, uh, of your um, I said, Tom Hamilton. He said, no, 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 no. I mean, what's the name of your organization? I said, I don't have one. You don't have one? You're not? I said, no. He closed his book. I said, wow. I said, send it to him. And I mentioned another ministry. I said, send it to him. They're tax exempt. He said, you know, I might do that or something like that. People are controlled by money. They can't see how God would bless them if they did not get an exemption in the taxes for it. But you see, if you give in order to get a deduction, that's your reward. All these other rewards are out. That's your reward. You got a break on your income tax. That is your reward. If your left hand don't know what your right hand is doing and you give it as unto the Lord, then his reward is coming. And he blesses you abundantly. Now, you'll have to prove that. That's what the Bible says. You'll have to find that out on your own as to how you live. But is giving a command, is it a responsibility that I have? Is it to help the church? If I don't give to the church system, do I sin? Is the tithe all that I have to give? If I tithe, is that the end of my giving? Because for most people, 
for most Christian people that I remember growing up with, the only legal amount of money you ever had to give was your tithe. And that was one-tenth. In fact, the church used to give us every January a little box of beggar's bags. Remember those? You ever get one of them? A little box that had 52 little envelopes in it. People call them beggar's bags. And the little envelope had your number on it, which was recorded by the church treasurer. And whatever you put in that envelope, you put in the Sunday offering. And when the church treasurer opened it, she marked down on your number there with your name how much money or how much the check was you put in there, and she wrote that down. And then at the end of the year, you add all of those up, and you send a receipt to the person who gave so they can legally prove they gave that much and take it off their income tax. That was a joy of being incorporated, of having a, a church like that. But that's all they were required to give. If special speaker came to town, they didn't feel any obligation to it. In fact, when I told the preacher when I was going to start teaching in church on Sunday nights, he said, well, we'll make you an associate minister here and give you some kind of a salary. I said, I don't want that. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, no, just put a box in the back and let those that come. I don't want people that don't come. to. They don't want to hear it. I don't want their money. Just put the box back there in the back and let whoever wants to give, give. I remember the preacher saying, well, he said, well, you won't get anything. That's the nature of the way Christian people are in traditional religions. You give it on Sunday morning, there is no other reason ever to give. But he was right. <laughs> he was right. I did give a $5 bill one night. But that's it for a couple of weeks anyway. I think when you start teaching people some of these things, and, and this is not my easiest subject to teach on, but when you begin to teach people how to give, the motivation to give, who to give, and why you give, to who you give, and what the Bible says about your giving with the right heart, and the return and the blessing that comes, a lot of people say, I'm going to try that. And when they do, it works. And then you don't have to keep teaching on it all the time because they get it. You young folks that are here, you know, when I taught this eight years ago, you were just indifferent then. This little kid sitting there waiting for church to end, hoping it'd hurry up and get over with. And now you've got children. Now you've got a job. You're an adult. You're a functioning part of our society, a contributing part of society, a contributing member of the church. These things you ought to learn. You ought to know this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And there is a way that you give. You don't do it grudgingly. You don't do it sparingly to how little you can get by with. You give as a joyful response to God. Look what he's given to me. Look how well I'm doing. I'm 27, eight years old. I've got money and I've, I've got a future and I, things are looking up and I'm going somewhere. You know why all of that's true? Because of God. God is bringing all of this into your life. There's a reason for this. That's a good one. Now let's take the tithe. Let me begin with the tithe, and then I'll let you go. Turn to Numbers 18. It's a, one of the chapters on the tithe in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 18. Leviticus, Exodus, Matthew, Numbers. All right, Numbers chapter 18. This is the chapter that God speaks mostly about the tithe. Now notice in verse 6. And I, behold, I have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel to you. They are given as a gift for the Lord to do service of the tabernacle in the congregation. Now, who were the Levites? Well, they'd be the ones that became the priests, the priestly tribe. They had no inheritance. They were given no lands. All they did as a priest was to minister to the Lord on the behalf of the people and God. God would give them direction, made them to be judges and to understand things and to bring in the offerings and to, everything that had to do with the sacrificial system. The priests were the ones who officiated it. And God said, these people get nothing like the rest of you got. They don't get lands to farm and lands to have all this and that on. They're going to spend all their time ministering before me. Is there a counter to that in the New Testament? 
Is there such a thing as a gift given to the church in the New Testament that does the same thing? Even though the New Testament church is a kingdom of priests, what is the gift in the New Testament? Well, there's five of them in, in Ephesians. We'll get to this a little bit more later on. But there are five gifts. They're all gifts from the Lord. And their purpose was to minister on the behalf of God to the people. He had apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers who were specially endued, specially anointed, specially gifted to do a certain specific thing for the people, on the behalf of the people. They were ministers of God. And he said here in verse 6, they are given as a gift for the Lord to do the service of the tabernacle. Now, verse 8, And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Behold, I also have given you the charge of the heave offerings and of all the hallowed or holy things of the children of Israel. Unto thee have I given them by reason of the anointing, that is, the call that is on your life to do what you're doing specifically, and to thy sons by a what forever? An ordinance. That was a statute. That was a declaration from God. This is what you're going to do throughout your generations. There's going to be a priest. There's going to be an offering. There's going to be ministry before the Lord on the behalf of the people. So that they'll bring to you their offerings and you will offer those to me. And then he said, this shall be thine of the most holy things. These are the offerings that they bring because all the offerings brought to the Lord were holy. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from fire. Every oblation of theirs, that's a drink offering, every meat offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every trespass offering of theirs, which they shall render unto me, shall be most holy for you and for your sons. Verse 12, and the best of the oil and the best of the wine and of the wheat, the first fruits of them which they shall offer unto the Lord, unto thee have I given them. Now, what did he say? There were specific ways you offered burnt offerings and certain things you did not eat, the fat, and was offered to the Lord. But then they would often give a heave offering, and they would just simply raise it up to the Lord like it was a heave offering. It might have been a shoulder, one of those big animals. And it was heaved to the Lord. It would belong to God. It was given to God. And God said, I'm giving that to you. And not only did he give that to them, but he said, later, you take of all the tithe that you get, the best of the oil, the best of the wine, the best of the grain, the best of the fruits, the best of the meat, the very best that people bring. And there's thousands of people bringing thousands of things. I'm giving that all to you. This is your inheritance. It is God giving to you their best. And he said, now I want you to, as a priest, take all that you've got, and I want you to offer a tenth of that to the Lord, and that shall be Aaron's. Let me tell you something. Aaron had no problems. A tenth of the tenth belonged to Aaron. It was the good pleasure of God to give what belonged to him to the people that he called to serve him in a specific way. And same is true today. We don't live by that rule because we don't have a storehouse anymore. We don't have a priesthood. We don't have regulation of music like they did and, and those things. All of that was symbolic. It had a picture. It portrayed the work of Christ. It's all done. It's been fulfilled. It's been set aside as a way for us to do things. You can't be right with God by going back and trying to do that. We have a new way of doing things now. But in principle... What was shown is then just like the ox, Deuteronomy speaks. Paul writes, he's not talking about just an ox. He's talking about the ox treading out should have all the grain he wants. Don't cut him short. That's what he was teaching. And we'll try to teach that next time. Again, this is not my easiest subject to teach on because I've been on the receiving side for so many years. And I've received well and done well. It doesn't mean everybody gives well because they tell me by the Google stats that 2% of the people in a church, 2% give, I think he said they give 80% of the offering. But that might be because 2% has got all the money, got more money. 
And 50%, he said, 50% of the people in a church seldom ever give regularly. But see, you can do that here and nobody will ever know it because that's your business. Only person that knows what you're giving is God or maybe your, your wife. Simply between you and the Lord. But I know this, that if you want to be blessed, you'll have to learn how to give. As I said years ago to my church preacher, I'm not going to live by a salary. I'm not for sale. I'm not for hire. I'm not for sale. If I'm going to live, it's going to be because of what I'm given, because that's a New Testament pattern. That's why I couldn't be hired by many churches, I don't guess. I think that's the way it should work, and I think that's the way it does work. And somebody can look and say, well, he's doing pretty well. I don't, he don't need any money from me. That's not the reason you give. You don't give because somebody's got enough. You give because it belongs to God. And if God is willing to give it to somebody else, and that's his blessing to a person, it was his idea. Amen. God is good. I sense in my heart that there is a bit of uh, struggle or consternation with this among some of you. So next week we'll be a little slower and deal with it because it sure ain't going to run from it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Bow your heads with me, please. Thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight in the name of Jesus for your word and for your abundance. We thank you that we can go to bed at night and wake up in the morning and know that our lives are in your hands, that our well-being is with you, and that you will supply all of our need according to your riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That we don't have to be covetous. We don't have to wish. We don't have to want what somebody has. You said if we'll delight ourselves in you, you will give us the desires of our heart. Now, you know the hearts of everybody here tonight, and I ask you to bless everybody with a good answer to whatever questions they have. Good inspiration. A good quickening of your will to their hearts to know how and what to do. What to study, what answers to seek after. I ask you to bless these that are here tonight with that. Bless those that listen or watch. Keep our feet on the right path, Lord. Deliver us from greed and want, as well as from stinginess. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.